Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind and information that makes you better. We've done over 400 episodes on information that hopefully makes you more successful however you define success. And this episode made me realize something that I hadn't thought of before, which is how do we spend over 400 hours just in this podcast alone, discussing how to be better without spending really any time understanding our origin story and how that can inform our decisions. What I mean by that is take your average house pet, for example. Let's think of a dog. If you have talked to any expert on dogs, they will often refer back to the wolf in its natural environment, its survival instincts, its evolution, and how those behaviors shape the dog and therefore inform us on how to interact with it. So there's new things about raw food, feeding it what it would eat in nature. There's things about eye contact and what its mannerisms mean. I say all this because in this week's episode, we are essentially talking about the human origin story. Where did all life come from? How did we get here? I mean, really deep stuff from a scientific perspective, meaning what does the best science of today tell us about who we are, how we got here, and how we can understand ourselves better to live better. This week on the show, we are talking to Dan Levitt 
about his new book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms, from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. Dan has over 20 years of experience writing and producing science and history documentaries. He's worked with scientists throughout the world, including Stephen Hawking, Michio Kaku, Sean Carroll, and many more. He has a fascinating way of writing and explaining things in understandable ways. Can't wait to bring this one to you. Let's get into it. Here's our interview with Dan Levitt about his new book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. Enjoy. Your book starts with, we are all technically worth $1,942.29. Tell us how you got to that number. We did the calculations. Our bodies have uh, about 60 elements in us. 24 of them are the essential ones, but the others, basically anything that gets in the dirt, gets in our bodies, right? So there are about 60 in total. And so we went through, I went through the list and I actually uh, uh, got somebody to help me with this. And we, we tallied up from, from reference books the percentage of each element in our body and the market value of them. And that's what we got. You explain things like we've got about a, uh, a salt shaker worth of salt in us and enough chlorine to chlorinate the average pool. And so when we say elements, I think for people who are non-scientific, elements don't mean actually what they mean, which is the things we use in everyday life, such as salt, chlorine, etc., which we contain. It's just a different way of thinking about it. It is. You know, the universe began with hydrogen uh, and protons uh, uh, and helium, but from the Big Bang, uh, hydrogen popped out, right? Those condensed into stars. And in the tremendous heat of stars and in the most powerful explosions in the universe, which are the explosion of stars, supernova, all the other elements of the universe were created. They're about 118 on the periodic table. The heavier elements each have additional protons in their nucleus. And we are made of the elements of life, that is, particular subset of them. Largely, 98% of us is only six elements. Really? Right? It's hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Uh, and um, each of those... Uh, as I said, is is heavier than hydrogen. And together, they create chains of unbelievable complexity. And that's what makes the organic molecules that make us. If you go look at a rock, it might have, you know, some other, a few other elements in it, but it doesn't have the same complex chains that make us up. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a common phrase that many of us listening have heard of, which is this idea, we're, we're all stardust. I don't know if that was Carl Sagan or... Neil deGrasse Tyson. Do you know where that quote originated? Carl Sagan said, we're all star stuff. Star stuff. Okay. Joni Mitchell said, we are stardust. Ah. We are golden. <laughs> uh, uh, but in a sense, that's exactly right. That's, that's what the book is about. My book is about, uh, on one level, how those elements that we're made of were created in stars. And then it traces how we got from the stuff that came out of the stars to the formation of planet Earth, the origin of life, and ultimately to us. 
with the complexity of life and everything we have going on, why should people care about the granularity that that you talk about in your book? You know, it's our ultimate origin story. What I discovered in researching the book, and it was really the, the, the impetus of the book in some ways, is that every single particle in our body, when I'm looking at you and when I look at myself, every single particle in our body came from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. And so this is the story of how those particles that exploded out of the Big Bang ultimately created the unbelievable majesty and complexity of the universe and how we got here. That's a really important story. As humans, we will spend so much of our time trying to understand things in our lives, how to raise our kids or how to get stronger, or how to eat healthier, all these things. Very rarely do we pause and think about, well, where did it come from and how can that information power our choices? And that was something that drew me in. You talk about really the start of your journey actually came from a discussion with your daughter about food specifically. So can you tell us about how this came about and then give us a hint on where you landed after you did all this work? It began with the question when my daughter as a teenager was thinking of becoming a vegetarian, um, like any good parent, I was wondering, well, what does she have to eat in order to remain healthy? And I very quickly realized that I had absolutely no idea what our bodies are made of, nor do I have an idea where whatever that is came from. And after scratching my head a little bit and Googling a little bit, I, I discovered that every single particle in our body sprang out of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago at the origin of time. That's when time began. And so quickly it became very clear to me that um, the journey of those, of those particles from the Big Bang to us must have been incredibly, incredibly eventful. And you know, the other part of it, which is amazing, is that we are made of those particles and we can look back and reconstruct that journey, not just over a hundred years or a thousand years, but over millions and billions of years. And that itself, how we discovered and reconstructed that journey is also just incredible. Tracing the stories of the scientists and their their heartbreaks and their hard work and their um, uh, their their triumphs as they came up with the, the the discoveries that allowed us to reconstruct that journey, that really also uh, is as much what the book is about, and it's full of great stories like that. And and towards the end of the episode, so this is a teaser for those listening. I want to hear from you after writing the book and all that. What did you determine about? Uh, how we can live based on the knowledge of our origin. So whether that be food or anything, just want to know how it's changed you. But let's start going down this journey. And everybody listening has heard of the Big Bang. And I think we kind of know there was matter and some kind of explosion and it all shot out and the universe is expanding and that's where it all came from. But there's nuances there that you talk about. So here's one of the first I wanted to ask. There was a guy and I could not, I can't pronounce his name. What's his name? Lemaitre. Georges Lemaitre. Okay. He essentially is the one who discovered the Big Bang. And you can tell us about that, but also he brought it to somebody we've all heard of, which is Einstein. And what I don't think I realized is initially 
Einstein refuted the theory and hated it. So tell us a little bit about how that went and how eventually Einstein got on board and it became sort of mainstream. Yeah, it's a great story because it, it was a Catholic priest of all people who showed Einstein that he was wrong. Lemaitre was a brilliant physicist uh, who came of age and studied very soon after Einstein came up with this big theory of general relativity. And Lemaitre heard in the 1920s of some observations that suggested that galaxies further away from Earth were accelerating away from us faster than galaxies closer to us. And that suggested to him that the universe was expanding. So he looked into Einstein's theories and Einstein's equations, and he found just that possibility. So he tracked Einstein down because he wrote a paper that everybody ignored. And um, he told Einstein about it. And, and Einstein said to him, well, you know what? Your, your physics is great, but your physical intuition is atrocious. There's no way that that's possible, that the universe is expanding. It, I mean, for Einstein, it was just too weird to be true. But Lemaitre dug deeper into Einstein's equations, and he realized if the universe is expanding now, a little bit earlier in time it was smaller, a little bit early in time it was smaller, and so on. And so by implication, if you go back far enough in time, the entire universe and every single particle and piece and bit of it was contained in a tiny, teeny bit of time and space. Einstein hated that too, right? In part, there was a there was a, even a, a sense in which Lemaitre was a priest, and he was you know, and, and he was telling Einstein that there was an origin to the universe. It, it even reeked of a re religiosity to Einstein, but he had to accept the evidence. There was the later, uh, later, and not too long afterwards, there was much more observational evidence that suggested exactly that. And so Einstein came around. Lemaitre convinced him. And do we know before Einstein was convinced where he thought it all came from? Because it's funny, as you mentioned, the religious nature of an origin story, but he must have thought it came from somewhere. He must have had some origin story in his mind. I don't think that that was approachable by science. I, you know, I think people assumed perhaps it existed forever. Perhaps it was static, unchanging. But there was no scientific way to address that. It was just the assumption because the idea that the universe ex, you know, expanded. If the universe is expanding, what's it expanding into? We still can't answer that question. Right, right, right. So it doesn't seem like the first explanation, the first theory that you would come up with. Yeah. Well, what's it expanding into? That's just a mind-bending question. So, And we don't know the answer. Just as mind-bending is what happened before the Big Bang. And I, I know you talk about that, and I think we'll be a little frustrated by the answer. But what do you say to that in all your research? Where did it come from? Nobody knows. Right. There are many scientists who have lots of informed speculation. Uh, some people suggest that the universe expanded and contracted and expanded and contracted. Some people suggest that there's a multiverse and multiple universes out there, and we are just one of them. Lemaitre who was obviously a very religious priest, believed that the Big Bang provided a veil beyond which we couldn't peer. And that's why he saw no conflict between science and religion. Because for him, science, he looked to science to understand the world as it is, and religion 
to provide the path to salvation. And so nobody knows the answer to that question. I wish I did. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com smart. Yeah, and I want to highlight for our listeners what you just said about how Lemaitre separated science and religion, because I actually think it's a clean and somewhat worthwhile recognition, because so much of our divisiveness comes from, okay, it's either religion or science. And this guy, who essentially discovered our origin story, significantly represented both sides of that. Tell us a little bit about, more about how he squared that away. Especially as it relates to religious texts and the Bible and things like that. Lemaitre simply didn't believe that the universe as we know it could be explained literally physically through the Bible. In fact, when the Pope heard about Lemaitre's theory, he wanted to announce at a press conference that Lemaitre and Einstein had shown how Einstein's theory actually showed that the universe had an origin just like it did in the Big Bang. Lemaitre went and visited with him and asked him not to do that. He explained that we can't see beyond the Big Bang. So there are two paths to knowledge. And he chose to follow both of them. He remained a very religious priest for his entire life. Uh, and yet he was very active in science. And he was not the only person in my book. There were quite a number of other scientists who were very devout and religion uh, uh, and religious, uh, but who saw no conflict between that and their, under their scientific understanding of the world. And I, I just, again, I think it's one of the most important issues. And so I'm just going to capstone it here, which is, as Lemaitre essentially explains, and you talk about this in your book, right, the Bible can be taken not literally and still be useful, right? A path to salvation. Whereas science can start to uncover some of the literal, but not the perhaps mystical or whatever you want to call it, because it can't prove everything. And I just think it's interesting that people in, you know, 1900, when they didn't have near the the sophisticated instruments and everything that we have, they were able to handle that dichotomy. But today we struggle with it even more. 
And I just think it's worth recognizing that, especially the fact that the person who discovered our origin was a priest. Really fascinating. It is, uh, because, you know, we're never really going to know what happened before the Big Bang. And so there are some mysteries that science simply won't be able to answer. Well, let's hope one day, maybe, we figure it out. In that story, as we talked about Einstein and the Matra, there's something you mentioned that permeates not just your book, but essentially all of history, which is Einstein refuted the Big Bang primarily, as you mentioned, it just didn't seem logical to him. And you start off early in the book explaining these cognitive biases. And it's frustrating because history is rife with people who bring truth up and they are continually put down and called crazy. Tell us a little bit about these biases and how they've shaped our understanding of the universe as we know it. Well, let me explain how I came across them because the, the cognitive bias, which ended up being one of the themes in the book, was not something that I intended to write about at all. There are so many wonderful discoveries that I chronicle in the book. And every time I, 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 I looked at the, how the scientists came across them and tried to, to tell their stories of how they made these unbelievable discoveries, and then I wanted to look at how scientists at the time responded to them. And again and again, the initial response was skepticism and even scorn. I mean, it was just, it was, it was way more often than not. And so when I finished the first draft of the book, I started scratching my head and thinking, why is this? This is just crazy. And when I went back and analyzed them, I found that there were six cognitive biases that came up again and again. And, and I've given them nicknames. One of them is the too weird to be true bias. Another one was, if our current tools can't detect it, it doesn't exist. Uh, there's the, um, as an expert, I've lost sight of how much is still unknown. That's a great one because, um, for instance, in up to the 1960s, scientists believed that there was no way that organic molecules, and those are the molecules that we are made of, the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen chains that we are made of, they, they didn't believe that they could possibly exist in space because space is full of uh, cosmic rays and X-rays and other things that would destroy long, fragile molecules. So they had good reason. What they didn't realize until one scientist by the name of Charles Town decided to look for them and immediately began to find longer molecules in space was that a vast cloud of molecules could be so large that the molecules on the periphery protect those on the inside from being destroyed. The reason why that's so fascinating is that now we realize that the universe is permeated with organic molecules. And that's given scientists uh, a lot of hope or at least suspicion that that means it's much more likely that there could be life on other planets. Because the stuff that life is made on, of, on Earth, some of the precursors of it, is found everywhere in the universe. I, I want to pause you there because that was something I actually, that was one of the notes I wrote down. It's fun to think about the idea that these precursors for life are kind of just floating out there. And if they fall in the right place on the right planet, it makes sense that there would be other life out there. That's what is needed because everybody wants to know where did life come from? And we kind of, it's just, it's almost too confusing to understand. But I think if the ingredients are floating around and they happen to fall in the right spot, 
that's a fun way to think about it. It is, and it's and and it's given scientists uh, a lot more reason to think that life could permeate the universe. Absolutely, it is still astounding that we don't know where life came from. Essentially, meaning how it's on this planet, right? So that's one theory. The other is kind of volcanoes, I think, or somewhere deep in the earth. Through your research, what is the most likely? You know, there that was one of the most interesting chapters to write because there's so much disagreement. Let's say in the 1940s, which is not that long ago, we really had no good theories at all. Now we have lots of theories, many of which have very strong points to recommend them. Some believe that life began on the surface of the earth in, in, in a variety of different ways. Some believe that life began on the ocean floor at hydrothermal vents, which were like organic matter uh, factories, they, they, they think. Um, but there's tremendous disagreement, and 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 the folks who believe that life began on the life surface think that the people who are, who suggested began below the at the bottom of the ocean are out to lunch, and 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 vice versa. So I I don't know that I have a, a, a an oar to to row there. I I don't I don't have an opinion, but I will tell you one of the biggest surprises that I had got in the book was when I talked to a, a well-known geologist uh, and I asked him, where do you think life began? And I expected him to point to some place on earth. And instead he said, well, if I had to put my money on it, I'd, pro I'd probably put my money on Mars. What? <laughs> That's exactly my point. That was like, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it turns out he studies the impacts of massive asteroids when they hit planets like earth. And he was among those who calculated that if an asteroid hit Mars, not all of the um, area around it would be um, melted, but there would be huge chunks of rock that would be thrown out of Mars orbit and would find their way to Earth. Scientists have found small uh, meteorite fragments that they've determined did come from Mars. They analyzed them and discovered that they've never been heated to more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's that's like Phoenix, Arizona yeah, on a hot like day, nothing. right? That's right. not that's not going to kill right. life, right? And bacteria can survive on in space. Bacteria have been found to survive over five hundred days on the International Space Shuttle. And so here's the thing: uh, early in Earth's existence, it was pummeled by huge asteroids that that may have completely vaporized the ocean or at least vaporized parts of it for a long time. Uh, Mars was smaller. It had all the same conditions. It had water in all the same conditions that Earth did, but because it was smaller, it wasn't disturbed in the same way as much. So, and and life evolved on Earth so quickly that there are many very uh, well-respected scientists who believe it's very possible that 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 microbes essentially evolved first on Mars, found their way to Earth, and that's what seeded life here. You know, it's funny, we're going about it all backwards, where we go, I wonder if there's life on Mars, and essentially it's like, yeah, there used to be, it's you. Think about the statement you just made, right? Mars had life, and then asteroids hit it, but they weren't hot enough, so they came to Earth, and we know that they're from Mars, they never got higher than 104 degrees. Even our ability to recognize or understand that scientifically seems impossible. All of this leads me to believe one thing. And it's a theory I've had for a long time. I think 
that the universe, us, what we're made of, we will continually find smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. This is my theory. It's a, it's a wormhole that you can never get to the end of. I know there's scientists that would refute that, but as I was reading your book, the answer I got to was, as we know it, the smallest thing life is made of is quarks. Is that correct? The smallest living thing is a cell. Okay. We're made of 30 trillion cells. Plants are made of cells. Every, that, that's the smallest living thing that, that we're made of. But if you ask what's the smallest thing that cells are made of, it's, of course, we know it's made of atoms, it's made of electrons and neutrons and protons, which are within the atoms. But the protons and the neutrons are made of even smaller particles called, called quarks. Those are the smallest particles in the universe. And there is a sense because your body ultimately is made of atoms, which are made of electrons, neutrons, and protons. There's a sense in which you are made of something like, you know, three times 10 to the 27 electrons, scores more quarks, and scores more gluons, which are tiny particles of force, which glue the quarks together. And that's it. That's you right there. See, okay. This is why it's fascinating, because I got to ask you, explain to us what a quark is. The best I can answer is that it is a teeny, teeny, tiny particle. Like all particles in the universe, it has a spin it also has a charge and a number of other properties, which which uh, you know I, I I won't go into. Uh, quarks make up the protons in our cells uh, in in an atom. Each atom, hydrogen has one proton, helium has two, carbon has uh, six, oxygen has eight, and so on. Those uh, quarks are bound together within the protons, and since the pro- the number of protons in a nucleus determines which element the atom is. In a sense, quarks are the building blocks, along with electrons, of atoms. But how big are quarks, or rather how small are they? You know, as I said, like, you know, 30 octillion in your in, in, in your body, they are smaller than smaller than small. Right. And the reason I ask is because, you know, the common idea that we are energy. Everything is energy. And I know that to be true, but like, if we say that the smallest part is energy, then are you aware of any truth to, if we're all energy, then there's these energetic fields that we can't see. And I think there's implications to our reality because of that. Meaning like there's energy transfer and we can feel other people and there's you know, energy fields that we can't see, but, but our bodies know of. I just feel like there's so much of the mystical will one day be solved by understanding the energetic nature of life. There's nothing that I've heard that suggests that that's correct. Uh, What I do know is that because of the bizarre nature of quantum mechanics, which is the, the uh, study of the tiniest subatomic particles, we know that all particles are simultaneously particles and waves. And in that sense, everything in the universe is both an energy field and a particle. Don't ask yeah. me how. I mean, you can ask me how. I don't know. Ask any physicist how, and they'll say, 
it just is, right? I mean, they can't explain it either. So there is a sense in which everything is both a particle and a wave. But to the extent to which those waves can be transmitted in 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 aura type uh, things or other things, I think that's nothing that scientists has have have has, has suggested. Well, I'm sticking to my theory. I think one day I'm I'm telling you, I think one day they're going to prove if you think this way or do this thing, then the energy attracts something. I mean, I don't know. It gets crazy, but it's just my sense. So we'll move on from this. Uh, because there was one thing I wanted to talk about, which is this very simple yet completely necessary thing called H2O. And it's not only needed for life, but when you think about it, it's it's super simplistic. So I want to start with what makes water so fascinating yet necessary for life? Well, there's not going to be any life without it for many reasons. Uh, one of them is uh, life. We're made up of lots of molecules that are moving around. That's not going to happen in a solid, right? Water is the medium that allows molecules to move around and meet and greet and create new things. And one of the water is a bizarre molecule. One of the things that's interesting about it is it's got very weak bonds between its between the different molecules, so weak that they. Uh, they break and reform again, uh, I think it's trillions of times a second, right? And that allows all the other molecules in our body, the, the organic molecules, to race around at great speeds. Uh, uh, and yet they co cohere within this confined space. So um, water is really, you know, the, 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 the medium that we're made of. Water also does other things. It um, it it it, it uh, aids many key chemical reactions in our in our cells because of its of its uh, odd hydrogen bonds. It actually helps DNA and proteins uh, find their shape uh, within within the cell. Um, and then there's the ever popular. Uh, you've probably noticed that um, uh, on a pond when it gets cold enough, ice freezes at the top, not the bottom. If it froze at the bottom and it got so cold, all the life within the water would be frozen solid. Right. The fact that it isn't allows life to survive in the oceans and, and, and in, uh, in, in, in smaller bodies of water when otherwise it might not be able to survive. I don't even know how to ask questions about this. It's so crazy. What, where did it come from? The um, hydrogen came out of the Big Bang. Oxygen was formed in stars. Huge molecular clouds from those stars were drifting in space. They created, as, as gravity pulled those molecules closer and closer together, and most of it was hydrogen, uh, that created uh, our star. There was a disk around it of, of, of material that created the planets. And in that disk was hydrogen and oxygen, and they formed water. I mean, it's almost by luck. And what, what I find so confusing is there is this thing, water, that is necessary to sustain all life, the reasons many of which you just went through. But first, water had to be available. And in order for that to be available, it had to come through these meetings, right? So it, it just almost feels like there was this big bang, a bunch of stuff just shot out. And over time, it mixed together, and that mixing 
caused certain things to then allow for life. It's just not logical. Well, you know, water exists because there were certain fundamental constants in the universe that uh, exist. There was gravity, there's the strong force, the weak force, the basic forces in the universe were there. And once you had all those protons and neutrons coming out of the Big Bang, there's a sense in which water was destined to exist. And if you roll the tape again, uh, water might be here. Yeah. But there are all kinds of other lucky breaks that if you, you, if you think about them, you realize if they hadn't occurred, we wouldn't have life. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, one of them is the first thing that came out of the Big Bang were particles of matter and particles of antimatter. And when they, antimatter is real, when they collide, they annihilate each other. But for some reason that nobody has any idea about, um, there were a billion and one particles of matter for every billion particles of antimatter. So we're the leftovers, right? With all visible matter in the universe, including you and I, came from those leftover particles of matter. So then when, once uh, we had hydrogen fusing to create helium and generating heat and creating other elements within the sun, that only happened because the energy levels of uh, the subatomic particles was at just the right levels that it was possible for the heavier elements to be created. It's a, it's a fundamental constants in our universe and and uh but but who knows whether there's another universe where that doesn't doesn't happen when our earth formed our earth formed because there were trillions and trillions of small collisions of dust and gas molecules that created larger particles and larger they were all swirling together ultimately in our solar system there were about a hundred planet-sized things careening around and crashing into each other and our earth found its final mass when a Mars-sized body smashed into it, vaporized the entire surface, uh, much of it flew up into Earth, some of it flew up into Earth's orbit and um, formed the moon, by the way. But the entire Earth was molten, molten, uh, um, uh, it melted to the core, right? Uh, but that process meant that we had a hot iron core that's quite large in the center of the Earth. That was a lucky break because that core creates a magnetic field around the Earth that shields us from deadly cosmic rays, which would otherwise destroy organic molecules. Right. Wait, I, wait, I got to pause you there. So, so not all planets have that iron core. Like the makeup of the center is different for all of them. I think most of them I think most of them do have the iron core because they were all formed by the same kind of huge collision and they melted, and the iron, which is heavy, all sank to them. However, um, Mars is smaller than Earth. Its iron core is smaller. And that meant that it didn't couldn't uh, protect uh, its early oceans. It didn't have the magnetic field around it to protect it from, uh, from solar winds. So it lost its iron, uh, uh, a lot of its atmosphere. Uh, and water because solar winds came down and, and and split the water. So the fact that Earth was large enough with a large enough iron core, that protected, that created a protective shield around the Earth, which is one of the reasons that we're here. Before this collision, iron existed in what was known as the Earth, whatever we'll call it, right? This planet. 
but it might have been more scattered or not in the same place or density or all these things. The collision creates so much heat, we'll just say, that everything is now liquid or molten or I don't know. And you can correct me where I'm wrong. And so in a liquid of some sort, the heaviest things are going to sink to the bottom, which is why iron just kind of, it, it all settled there. And then as it kind of hardened again, it stayed there in the middle. And it just so happens that that thing, iron, creates the magnetic field, which blocks things out. Is that a iron for dummies type description? That's correct in all, in all but one okay. expect, uh, respect. Um, Earth, even before it was hit by this Mars-sized body, already had its iron in its core because it had been it formed by other collisions earlier. Uh, but that iron... You know, it, the the collision brought a lot more iron, which sank down and increased the size of the Earth's core. And it's because Earth is so large and has that large core that it, the magnetic field around it protects it, protects us from cosmic rays. Yeah, this is why I, the fact that it just so happens that iron is the one that is at the core. And it also just so happens that iron is the one that creates a magnetic field. And it just so happens that we need that magnetic field to prevent us from the chaos of the universe is just as confusing as it just so happens that water has all of these properties and it's necessary and it's here. And the reason I'm bringing all this up, the more I talk to you, the more I'm convinced that the universe was created like a simulation. What you're essentially saying is there is a um, space that somebody said, here are the rules. Okay, these rules cannot be broken. And you were talking about some of them, gravity, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to put these rules in place. I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff in there and see how those rules determine how the stuff ends up. That's essentially what happened. And there's no way that that can just be happenstance. I wouldn't go where you're going. However, there are a lot of physicists who uh, do think about the possibility who think about those questions. And even if they're not thinking about a simulation, they wonder whether there are other universes with other fundamental constants where other possibilities for the kind of universe that can exist are extant. Then the rules that govern us, it doesn't mean that they're the only rules that exist. There are other places where those rules are different. So the simplest term, there could be a place where gravity is not a thing. And that I could get behind because if you have infinite universes with infinite sets of rules, then there isn't so much um, structure as there tends to be here with those rules. Is that what they're kind of, is that what these other physicists are positing? I don't think that they would say gravity is not a thing. Really? I, I mean, I think this is really kind of beyond where we can really, really speculate. I mean, okay. what, what we know is that the universe has four fundamental forces and certain kind of molecules, you know, exactly what they would look like if the rules were completely changed. I think that's beyond beyond our, our speculation. Okay. Yeah. Do you have another favorite of just kind of lucky happenstance? Well, there, I mean, I, I think there are a lot more. You know, the one that I find just, just incredible is the role of photosynthesis on our planet. Uh, without photosynthesis, you and I, none of us would be here. Uh, the reason why is that um, uh, life began some around 4 billion, 3.8 billion years ago. But uh, in the early Earth, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. 
Now oxygen is 21%, right? And where did the oxygen came from? It came from life. There's a sense in which life transformed, terraformed our planet because bacteria evolved that could photosynthesize. They released oxygen into the atmosphere and that oxygen did a number of really profound things. First, it rose up high and created the ozone layer, which is protective layer for us against UV rays, right? Which would otherwise destroy our, our cells and our DNA. Huh. But they also made it possible for uh, something else to happen. And, and that is for uh, new kinds of, of, of uh, cells and structures to evolve that could photosynthesize. And uh, I'm sorry, that could burn energy. And where, how did they do that? Once oxygen was in the atmosphere, they could combine the uh, sugars with oxygen to liberate much more energy than they could otherwise. So I'm even getting my, ahead of myself a little bit in the story here. Check this out, right? Your body is 93% a product of photosynthesis. 83% of you is carbon and oxygen. And those molecules that I'm talking about, the mass of your body, was one, were once just molecules of carbon dioxide floating in space. Another 10% of you are hydrogen that was stolen from water. Because what is photosynthesis? Photosynthesis is uh, you take carbon dioxide from the air, hydrogen from the water, you use energy from the sun, 91, that's generated 91 million miles away, and you make sugar. And from those sugars, you make the other organic molecules that are in plants and in other photosynthesizers. That's really the basis of our of 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 much of life on on Earth. So it's and and I mean, think about this. Check this out. Right before you had photosynthesis, you had single-celled creatures that could live in various places in the ocean, but they had to feed on minerals to get their energy. So they could live in small areas, right? Once you had photosynthesis, photosynthesizers evolved first in the ocean. So they could spread throughout. And um, as a result of that, it's supercharged evolution. You had the origin of plants, which took over the con continents. Now plants are 80% are of the Earth's biomass. And we are, I mean, in a sense, we are, uh, we're completely dependent on plants because the carbohydrates, the fats, every, uh, virtually everything that we're made of ultimately came from plants. Some animals, but those animals ultimately down the food chain ate animals that ate plants. And so there's many, many ways. I mean, I'm just getting started. No, right? this is awesome. But there's so many ways in which photosynthesis really not just rules our world, but completely transformed the planet. Much of my life I've dedicated to healthy food. We live on a little farm. We've got some pretty large gardens. And I've always said this, one of the coolest things is to grow food yourself and then eat it. Like literally walk to the backyard, grab a cucumber and eat it. Me and my kids do it all the time. It's so much fun. And the reason I find so much joy in that is because I've watched myself take dirt, put a seed in there, water it and come out with this amazing food. And the reason I love that is because I kind of tell myself this story of just really eating sunlight. Your explanation of how that happened which I'm sure we learned in seventh grade science, seventh grade science to some extent, but I don't remember, was so clear, but so powerful on essentially what creates that. And I know you dedicate a large part of your book to that. It's just when you really think about all calories, all nutrition 
coming from that relatively simple yet impossible equation, it is yet again a description of the complexity of life. It, it is. It's, it's incredible. And that's what, that was one of the joys of writing the book. You know, when I started the book, I knew almost nothing that was in it. You know, one of the things that I learned, which I love, is when you stopped there, scientists have proposed so many fascinating theories for how we got from particles in the Big Bang to us. And we've learned about a lot of them. We've learned about the Big Bang. I learned about photosynthesis in, in high school and didn't really think two seconds about exactly. it. Exactly. Right? But when you stop and you really, really try to focus on, wow, you know, what does that mean? Some of these things turn, turn out to be unbelievably fascinating. And, and it was particularly fun to uh, follow scientists as they discovered these things. You know, just think about photosynthesis, about the first person who realized uh, this was at Ingenhaus, who was a, 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 um, a, a, a physician in the 1700s who realized, oh my God, using sunlight, plants transform our atmosphere. I mean, he was shocked, right? And there's so many kinds of discoveries like that in my book, where where if you stop and think about them, all of a sudden you're just you're just blown away, right? We often think about plants in terms of the food source. Of course, we also know, oh, they help with uh, greenhouse gases and global warming and all those things. But to actually think about how they do it, and the fact that they take in essentially sunlight, as you're talking about, and then both create sugars, which we can eat, and give off oxygen, which we have to have. Another reason why we're here, in a sense, is that life has transformed the atmosphere by also taking a certain amount of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and lowered the Earth's temperature. Uh, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, right? So if the more of it's in the atmosphere, the hotter the atmosphere will become. Through photosynthesis, carbon dioxide was taken out of the atmosphere, turned into sugars and other products. Animals and, and really plants and, and other photosynthesizers um, were created. And many of those sank to the bottom of the ocean and to swamps where they were turned into oil, gas, and coal, which means that that carbon, which was once floating in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, is now buried in the earth. That has kept our planet cooler than it would be otherwise. Now we're quickly releasing some of that back into the atmosphere. And, you know, we are disrupting a process that's really found almost a natural balance, in a sense, over millions and, and, and billions of years. And so, um, there, you know, if you look at Venus, Venus got too hot and lost its oceans. We're not going to get there. Uh, but um, we are tampering with a, uh, with, with a, a process that, you know, we, we would be wise not to mess with. For some reason, that's not as much a part of the story of climate change as it should be. Many of the listeners know that I have another podcast. It's on break right now. It's called The Week on Earth, and it's all dedicated to climate change. And there were two episodes I did, one in particular that I learned what you just said. And I, I was surprised I could be almost 40 and not know this, which was when we go clear cut a forest, when we go just, just chop it all down, we all think, oh, we killed the trees, which trees are good for obviously converting CO2 and oxygen, et cetera. What I didn't realize is that even more detrimental 
is we are stirring up that dirt and that dirt is chuck full of organic matter that has decayed for centuries. And that organic matter and all these things essentially are re-releasing that carbon into the atmosphere, which we don't talk about. I, I don't think I didn't even recognize how much carbon is just sequestered in our soil, just in the ground through the process you just outlined. Yeah, it really is. Um, I, I really didn't grasp it myself until I, I understood uh, in a very basic way that photosynthesis grabs carbon dioxide and puts it into living things. Yeah. And as long as it's not in the atmosphere, the, the atmosphere is cooler. By learning about our origin story and by going through this and better understanding photosynthesis, has it changed at all how you live, how you view your life, or the decisions you make in your life? You know, one of the things that I gained from the book was understanding how incredibly complex a single cell is, so deserving of respect. And our bodies are made of 30 trillion cells. Each one of those cells is made of a hundred million atoms. If you were to, if, if each atom was the thickness of a, of a dollar bill and you piled them up, it, it would reach to the moon almost 30 times. There's a way in which it's almost impossible for us to really comprehend how complex our own bodies are. You know, our cells are filled with all kinds of unbelievably fantastic molecular machines. And so there's a way in which, you know, when I look at you or uh, other people, you know, I think, wow, you are really, I mean, we are all just unbelievably sophisticated, amazing creatures. And that's given me a real feeling of, um, of, uh, gratitude and awe, and also uh, just a feeling of how lucky we are to be here. It's a much needed recognition. I think one that should give us gratitude every day. And again, the book is What's Gotten Into You, the story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. For those of us now who are adults who saw school as a necessity instead of an opportunity, and now I want to go back and understand the importance of these things. It's easier to digest through books like yours, authors like yourself, than it is to read the textbook. So highly recommend it, Dan. I thoroughly enjoyed it. How can people outside of your book continue to follow you and learn from you? Do you have social, website, et cetera? Um, I'm on Twitter, on Dan underscore Levitt. Uh, uh, and um, I have Facebook and danlevitt.com. I have a I have a web page, and you can find more about me and about uh, uh, about the book there as well. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on. This week's guest was Dan Levitt. As always, it was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Dan's book. What's Gotten Into You, the story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner, can be found wherever books are sold. All right, let's get to the quick housekeeping items. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. 
All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.